all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to talk about the health issues that affect you most. We've got a whole hour to address your health concerns, so give us a call today. We would love to hear from you. You can share those comments or questions with us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email at remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy on NPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and your host for the next uh, little less than an hour, but plenty of time to hear your questions about the health of yourself or others in your family or friends. That's right. This is the program where you can call in with any question that you have about your health. Maybe it's something that you've been diagnosed with recently, or maybe it's some symptoms you haven't quite gotten a diagnosis yet on, or maybe it's a medication that you're taking or something that's over the counter. This is your chance to call no matter what your age or the age of the patient. You can call us today at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you can't call us, you can always send an email. We try to address those as quickly as we can and try to bunch them together, too, with a program here or there. You can send that to remedy at mpbonline.org. Been away uh, doing some my uh, duties in other places. Uh, so I do, I've been working for about the last 10 years helping to uh, develop questions for the uh, medical licensure exams. Uh, the, they're called the USMLE. So that's in Philadelphia, not Mississippi. It's a little bit further away than that. But uh, had to be away last week. Thank uh, Dr. Um, um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Stephen LeBlanc for filling in for me. Did a great job last week and covering a lot of uh, allergy problems. That's his specialty, his area of expertise. He's a smart guy and uh, certainly appreciate him Stepping in, but glad to be back in Mississippi. Um, sort of nice going north during this time of year when things were sort of warming up. Man, beautiful weather, though, lately. With If we didn't have allergy problems that people are dealing with, this would be perfect weather. Just loving it right now, working outside on the weekends and at night, uh, getting my... my uh, therapy, as I call it, uh, outside, but um, sort of nice to go north. It was, uh, you know, to to cooler temperatures just to sort of remind ourselves what we're coming out of. 
but great time in Philadelphia doing that and working with some great people at the at the uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners. Great people to work with, and uh, that's uh, one of the things that uh, physicians that we have to do to uh, get a license, and then. In your own specialty area, a lot of people think, well, once you've got out of med school, that's it. Well, it's not. There's other training that you have to do, and you have to keep that uh, keep that up to date in different areas from time to time. So there's a lot of ongoing medical knowledge that your physician has to do uh, to maintain their certification in their specialty areas. So it's a lot of different stuff that you have to do. We call it lifelong learning. I was telling my ninth grader about this. It's like, you know... It's not that you uh, you stop at any point. You have to keep on doing that, and with that comes a lot of different things. So we're talking to a lot of uh, a lot of medical students, a lot of residents from time to time. They deal with uh, a little bit of anxiety over that, over those issues, and anxiety in and of itself can be a big issue in the general population. It's one of the most common things that patients present with, particularly in some age groups. Actually, it's one of the most common uh, um, presenting symptoms of anxiety uh, in the elderly population. So if you're over 70, that's a common one. And certainly you can have a lot of things to be anxious about in your life. But generally, a, a generalized anxiety disorder is one in which you don't really, can't really pinpoint a lot of times what caused it. It it takes some time to come on, but it is a real thing. It's not something that you can just get over in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's it's both excessive and persistent worrying about something. It's hard to control for a patient. And there's an impairment part of it. In other words, it's to the point. It's not just your, your sort of background worry about something that's coming up. A little bit of worry can be good. It can energize you to do what you need to do, whether that's an upcoming test or a job interview or uh, something that's happening in your life uh, that you're just a little bit worried about. You know, thinking about that and trying to deal with that in a productive way is good. But generalized anxiety disorder is something that can be sort of paralyzing to a lot of people. So on most days um, that this would be a feeling of these this excessive and persistent worrying that's hard to control for at least six months. And again, it's not something that you just flip a switch and all of a sudden you're having these symptoms. Usually there's some other symptoms with that, like uh, apprehensiveness about something. You can even be irritable. So you don't have to sort of shirk away from things. Maybe your spouse or your family or your coworkers are saying, you know, Jimmy, you're just a little bit more irritable lately. What's going on in your life? That might be a symptom of that. Or it might have other what we call somatic symptoms. So those are symptoms that are uh, that are manifest in the body. You know, our brain can uh, can sort of, uh, if you have a lot of different um, problems with anxiety or depression, sometimes those are uh, manifest in bodily complaints like increased fatigue, muscular tension, aches and pains. All those things can sometimes be caused by generalized anxiety disorder. It's certainly treatable. Uh, you don't have to take medication for it in most cases. There are some great techniques to deal with it. If there are individual stressors in your life, you can get help on how to uh, either remove those stressors or to deal with those stressors appropriately. Oftentimes, it's just that dealing with them and giving somebody 
some um, some tools that they can use. And part of that is something called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a way of retraining the brain to think through things in the proper way and to deal with them. And it, a lot of people say, you know, this is just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo stuff, and I'm not, I don't want to talk to somebody, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, about that. You know, it works, and it really it capitalizes on how our brains work. So your brain is constructed to deal with uh, the day-to-day things that it, it is um, um, that that come across your way, and it does it by reprogramming itself. So it's a big computer up there, but it's a wondrous mechanism that we've been given to uh, to deal with problems, new situations, and adapt to uh, to deal with those in the best way possible. And those little neurons, that's the individual cells in the brain, they talk to each other. And they do it, uh, if you want to think about it this way, they reach out to one another and they try to shake hands. They get really close to one another, but they don't actually touch. And that space between that little handshake, they communicate by a substance called neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters, there's a lot of different kinds. And you can think of it like a language, like it's a vocabulary. Now, just like some people have a very rich vocabulary, they have a lot more words that they can use uh, to communicate to other people. Uh, some people have a lot more uh, neurotransmitters in their brains. So they have a lot more of that to draw from, and it's a much richer environment for those neurons to work the way that they're supposed to in the brain, and they can adapt to different situations. However, some people, um, just like some people are shorter than other people, some people are taller, some people have less of those neurotransmitters. They have less of that vocabulary. And these are people that, uh, you know, if you look in their family and you start asking questions, they can have... Uh, a a lot of people that suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, they can suffer from depression. And these are also the people that might benefit from some of the medications that we have. So there's a whole host of medications, uh, the SSRIs or the S, uh, 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 selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the selective uh, norepi uh, inhibitors. Those are the two neurotransmitters that are particularly important in anxiety and depression. Sometimes they'll treat that with medication at least for a period of time. So generalized anxiety, bottom line, it's out there. Uh, Five to 10% of the population is probably going to have this at some point in their life. A lot of times it will have some overlap with things like depression and obsessive compulsive disorder, other types of of mental disorders that you can have. A lot of science on this. It's very treatable. A combination of doing things like we talked about with that cognitive behavioral therapy to allow you to have those tools to deal with it um, and maybe medications on top of that and somebody that knows what they're doing like a, uh, a psychiatrist or uh, somebody in general um, in a general practice that has a lot of expertise with that. So reach out to somebody if you're having some of those symptoms. Now, there's probably at least one person that's listening to that today to say, you know what, I do worry about things, and it's most days and not. Um, I don't want to do that because it's really incapacitating what I need to do. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with you this morning. Plenty of time, wide open phones right now, so you can give us a call today if you're dealing with something in your life that you'd like an answer to. It doesn't have to be on generalized anxiety disorder or depression, but certainly we'll welcome those questions as well. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. 
Network. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, your calls and maybe a word or two about Mother's Day coming up. Southern Remedy for Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, ready to answer your questions that you might have. I know there's somebody out there. Maybe you haven't called in before. This is your chance. You have a wide open board to call in to Southern Remedy with the question that you've been wanting to ask me about the health of yourself or somebody else. Give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if maybe you're just a little bit shy and you don't want to call in, always you can send us an email to us, and you can address that to remedy at mpbonline.org. Blank down on that second part just for a half a second there. Uh, speaking of emails, this is Ruth. Ruth sends us an email about her son, who is age five. She says, my son has had ear infections all of his life, it seems like. Every time I'm turning around, he's got an ear infection. And He's had three or four over the years, uh, 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 I'm sorry, per year for the last two years. But our physician, you know, says if he's getting a little bit older, he may not have to have any tubes. What would you do at this point? Sincerely, Ruth. So, Ruth, uh, that is sort of a gray line there. So as kids get older, there is less of a chance that ear infections are going to dominate the landscape of, of illnesses that they have. And that's because of the way that that, that canal in the, the back part of their upper throat that connects to the, to the throat, uh, uh, to the pharynx, uh, to the middle ear cavity. So it tends to get bigger, just like most things do when we grow older. And it changes direction, too. So it goes from being less horizontal to more vertical so that it can drain out. But some kids have excess tissue back there. There's adenoid tissue, which is a collection of uh, of sort of lymphocytes and lymphoid tissue that might be obstructing that canal. So sometimes that kind of surgery can help. An ear, nose, and throat specialist is somebody that's always a great help in trying to figure out if you need uh, surgery, either tubes, and really tubes just are, are a pop-off valve. And they don't necessarily prevent a lot of the infections, but they prevent the pressure that the, the infections can cause, which causes a lot of pain and could potentially cause chronic uh, hearing loss. So about three or four a year is about the cutoff, so you're right there at it. So if you haven't seen an ear, nose, and throat, Dr. Ruth, for your child, I think I would uh, 
I would definitely do that. But um, you might want to just wait it out. Five years of age, you know, if you continue to have that again, it's sort of on the fence. So you've got uh, you got a little bit of little bit of time to to do that. If you're at your wit's end, though, go see that you're in ENT. I bet they're probably going to put. Uh, Put tubes in those ears. All right, we've got a couple of people on the board. We're going to go to Chico and to Tupelo. Good morning. Are you there, Chico? Hold on just a second. All right, one second, and we'll get you on the board. I jumped the gun a little bit. Are you there, Chico? I'm right here. All right, thanks for calling this morning. Yes, sir. I'm, uh, about two months ago, I was went to my, uh, you know, primary care doctor for checkup. Uh, anyway, they told me I had pleurisy at the emergency room about a week before, so they just follow up visit. And they listened to my heart. He said I'm, I'm out of rhythm, and they determined I was in AFib. Mm-hmm. They put me on the Eliquis. Yep, that's a blood thinner. Me, You're right. Yep, we got me an appointment with a. I thought it was going to be a cardiologist. It was a nurse practitioner. Uh huh. And she asked me. I do drink bourbon. Uh huh. She asked me how much I drank, and I told her the truth. And she wondered why, and I told her because I liked it. You know, I've been <laughs> in the business 42 years. Anyway, yeah, yeah. She told me if I didn't quit drinking, she wasn't going to treat me. Yeah, and that's so, that's probably because of potential interactions with that Eliquis. Uh, so, yeah. Elo- so you know, Eliquis, just for everybody else out there, it is a blood thinner. And in a- right, atrial right, right. fibrillation... You're at increased risk of having a blood clot, stroke. right? So that blood clot would form in the heart. It would flip off and go to your head and have a stroke. So that's the whole background about that. There's other things out there to treat it with. Eliquis is sort of nice because you just put somebody on it. It's a consistent dose. You don't have to change much of what right. you do. Um, and then, but, there, but there is other things out there. You know, Coumadin's one that's old, yeah. older, but it does interact with a lot more things, and uh, you can have a, in some situations it can have excess bleeding. Of course, any blood fitter yeah, has yeah, that. The eloquence, uh, I've read about that. I've, yeah. I've been taking it about two months. Yeah. I just wondered, uh, should I just see a real MD or? Well, it's against alcoholics, or is, is my drinking hurt? It might be affecting it. It might be affecting it. Now, from the nurse practitioner versus MD, um, you know, question, if that nurse practitioner is working in a cardiology clinic. She uh, is. Yeah. So that's they take a team approach. And that's something that, you know, that's that's probably as good as an MD, um, uh, you know, in, in that situation. Um, and, and particularly if they're trained in that area like that. So that's, that's, that's probably okay. I, you could ask to see the doctor. I mean, you know, that's fine. Um, I see a lot of people and I've, you know, over the years and I know a lot of MDs and I know some cardiologists and I've talked to them Mm -hmm. on the side and they said, come see me. Yeah. Well, getting a second of my drinking, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cut back. Yeah. And and that may be something that you can do if you cut back a little bit. But yeah, get a second opinion on that. But it, it probably is going to if it's if it's worried or that you know worried your nurse practitioner that much, it might be it might be worthwhile, um, um, you know, to reduce my consumption. Yep, I probably would. I mean, if you talk about yeah, you know, if you've ever had, if you've ever known anybody that's had a stroke, that is not something you want. It oh, might. I know. I know. It's yeah, terrible. it might be worthwhile. You know, just cutting back on your drinking. I knew you were going to say that. 
I've been looking for that approach, but I just wondered. Yeah, and hey, Chico, you can get help too, man. There's a lot of different. Uh, don't be oh, don't be too prideful to do that, man. There's a lot of good things out there, a lot of good programs that you can use to do that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in it. I've been in and out of it, so you know I'm here for that. All right, Chico. Well, good luck to well, you. Thank Thanks. You for, for to me, All right. Thank you for calling. All right, let's go to Stuart in Leland. I think that's Leland, Mississippi. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Is that Leland in the Delta? Yes, sir. All right, that's where my wife was born, actually. Home of Jim Henson, right? <laughs> you got it. Yep. Yes, what can I do for you this morning? Sir, I've been told I've got pulmonary fibrosis. Uh-huh. And my question is, what happens when you get a second opinion? Does the original doctor get mad if you <laughs> went somewhere else? Uh, so how do I handle that? Yeah, most of the time they don't. Um, so it, it's I never get I, I, I that doesn't bother me one bit. I mean because I don't I want my patient. You a physician should want your patient to trust you and feel like that they particularly with something like that. So pulmonary fibrosis can be a long you know, chronic disease, but if it's something else that you can treat, I, I don't get mad about that. Now, I know some doctors do from time to time, but, um, uh, you know, one thing, a lot of patients feel bad about uh, talking to their doctor about a second opinion. Most of the time, if you talk to your physician and say, hey, look, I, I know you're smart and everything. I, this is nothing against you. I would just feel better if I got a second opinion. That's an excellent way to frame that, and most of the time they're going to be fine with that. Um, but particularly if it's something like pulmonary fibrosis and there's a little bit of a question about that, going to a physician that, particularly an expert that does that, like if that's all they do is look at pulmonary diseases or pulmonary, some, they're maybe even be super specialized, and that's all they do is look at pulmonary fibrosis or other interstitial lung diseases, and that, that may be who you need to see just to get a second opinion. Well, that's what uh, I've lined up. Uh, I haven't done it yet, but I'm, yep. I'm in the, uh, this pulmonary fibrosis is it's tough stuff. It is. And, it is. And uh, and it can be hard to treat, too. And that that's another thing about going to see a specialist. Um, if you see them early, you may can get in on some of the latest treatments that may give you the biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, there may be some things that your physician may not have access to that they might. So, and, you know, Stuart, in, in a lot of, a lot of, um, instances that may be a person that they were thinking about sending you to anyway. I see. Okay. But I, I, now, if, 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 I have a, I have a, uh, a relative in, in the Dallas area. Uh-huh. And there's, I, I, I don't know the name of the hospital. But anyway, she called me on the phone the other night and said they've got a a um, a hospital mm-hmm. uh, with eight or nine just doctors that just do pulmonary fibrosis. Yep. Yeah. And she wanted me to come out there and they, and let them see me. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and they may look at you and say, "Yep, that's what you got," and your physician's on track with what they're doing. But it sure would make you feel better. I got you. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, Stuart. And any kind of bigger academic center, um, you know, and I'm sure that's probably what's going on in Dallas. Um, it's, it's Baylor. Yeah, I, Baylor. I Baylor. Yeah. So 
So Baylor is huge, man. That Baylor is a big academic medical center, and uh, you know, it, it's. I guess you could think of it the same way as as uh, University Medical Center. So that's sort yeah. of similar set, uh, setup. But yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting a second opinion like that. Well, I sure thank you. All right, good luck to you, Stuart. Make my, I didn't want to make my original doctor angry. And sure. Yeah, sure. I, and a lot of people have concerns about that with their physician. I've just found if you will if you will contact that, that physician's office and just say, hey, can I talk to you when you get a chance and just say, hey, I trust you. I would just feel better if I had a second opinion. And these are guys that I've been told by my family that are good. I don't think they're going to have a problem with that. Thank you, sir. All right. Good Thank luck you. to you, Stuart. That's a tough one, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, uh, to deal with. And a lot of people have that. And they may not – it's hard to diagnose. Um, and um, if you could get a different diagnosis from it, you know, well, from a second opinion, that may be even better. But uh, good luck to you, Stuart, on that. Let's go to Joanne in Memphis. Oh, Joanne, we got a lot of background there. Are you there? Uh, yes. If you Hello. can, if you can, yes, ma'am, I can hear you fine. If you could turn your radio down, it's hard to. I've got a lot of feedback there. Okay, can you hear me now? I can hear you perfectly. That's perfect. What's going on this morning, Joanne? Okay. Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling you for this uh, <clears throat> blood pressure medicine. I am on. Um, I was getting a lot of side effects from me. But I just uh, Google it. I learned that it's on recall. It causes cancer. Losartan. Um, is I it? I can give you the name of the medicine, huh? Is it Losartan? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So one is uh, Tomasartan. Yeah. Spell T E L M I S A R T A N. That is a generic brand. Tomasartan. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's another one is uh, a lot of the pain, A-M-L-O-D-I-P-I-N-E. Yeah. So so that was, it's not from the blood pressure medication. It's from what's, what the, how they manufacture it. So it's uh, other things that are in there. And it's not every amlodipine prescription. It was just certain. And actually, I think the amlodipine was a combination with something else. So the drugs themselves don't cause cancer. It's something that was that they were made with, um, and it's only certain lots. So the best way to do this, what I've been telling my patients is, don't ask me if if it's you know if you're on one of those medications, you could be changed over to something else. There's plenty of blood pressure medications out there that will probably work about the same, but don't just change it because you think that you might be affected. Ask your pharmacist to check the lot number where you, on that medication. They're going to know that. If you just call them up or go by there and say, hey, check check out my medications. Are these the ones that are having a recall? And they're going to be the ones that can help you out to know exactly which one. Because if you're on telmasartan or amlodipine, you don't necessarily have to come off of it because it's not those medications. It's what's in those medications. It's, it's what's with those medications in the tablet. But calling the pharmacist and asking them if there's a recall on that lot number would be the thing to do. And if it's not, if they say, no, there's no recall, you're good. Well, I mean, it is a company. I don't trust it. And they try to cover their butt. Now I have a um, metaplasia in my stomach. I've been taking tomasotin for years. I don't even know what is causing my issues mm-hmm. and the gastritis and all. Um, 
now I call my doctor for the past two days. They haven't returned my call yet. They are not very good about that. But now I'm calling you. What medicine do you suggest that I think is safe for my stomach? Because I already have this uh, metaplasia. I don't want anything that's going to activate, that's going to make it worse on me with all this medication. Right. Um, that is why I'm trying to find out... Uh, Second opinion, what I need to do, which one is safe, that doesn't have a direct on it, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot more, and Joanna, we'd have to, I mean, I'd have to look at you completely, look at your lab work to see which ones, you know, that you've you've taken in the past and what's going on to really understand exactly what would fit. Most of the time, it's going to take more than one medication to control high blood pressure. Outside of those recalls, it's fine, and it's, again, it's not the telmasartan itself or the amlodipine it's just the other components in that tablet that cause the recall and and it's not necessarily a causative thing i mean it may i mean i would if it's a recall get off of it get on something else but uh you i would check out somebody else in the memphis area just just to see you if you're don't not getting a good response from your physician just to say hey can you give me a look about my hypertension and there may be some other medications. There are about five different drug classes, and there are multiple medications within each of those drug classes that can be used to treat hypertension successfully. And a lot of it is it is really just trial and error on individual patients. But um, that's where I would go first, Joanne, is just to get somebody to give you a good looking over if it's not your physician right now. Um, I, you know, it, there's probably other medications out there that you could take. There's beta blockers. There's different kinds of actually, amlodipine by itself is fine um, to to take. There's thiazide diuretics. Um, there's just a lot of different alpha blockers, alpha beta blockers, um, other ARBs. Tons of different different classes that you can take. I mean, in your opinion, what is the best medicine blood pressure? There's not one. There's yeah, there's not one. Most people are going to require a thiazide diuretic um, to to control as part of the regimen. But it's not like, here's the best one, that's it, that's what I go to every time. Everybody's a little different, and every medication is good to control blood pressure. So it's not as simple as that. It's pretty complicated. That's why I really think you need to go to somebody, either your current physician or somebody else, just to say, hey, look, how do I get my blood pressure uh, controlled and not have or at least reduce the side effects that you have uh, from different things? So that's what I'd say, Joanne. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got plenty of other calls. we got uh, Larry and Carrie that are patiently waiting. We're going to get to you in just a minute after we come back after this break.
This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. And We are glad to be with you answering your calls or comments that you might have. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And let's go to Carrie in Biloxi. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Thanks for calling. I have a question about uh, ablation, a procedure to where they go into the heart. Uh Uh-huh. Where they go into the heart with a... A laser, right? And they uh, it's supposed to stop atrial fib. Right. So it's uh, so atrial fibrillation. We'll back up a little bit just for everybody else. I know you're you're well versed on that, Gary. But um, so that is the upper two chambers of the heart aren't beating in rhythm together. So they fibrillate. So they're sort of quivering, and there's an increased risk, as we mentioned earlier in the in the program for a blood clot to form in the heart and then to go downstream somewhere. And the biggest risk is, of course, a, a stroke because it can go up to the, that's the one of the first branches off the aorta is straight up to the brain. So uh, in, in there's two ways you can, you can treat this. So if you have atrial fibrillation, you can control the heart rate because generally it's a little bit faster if you have atrial fibrillation. And you can slow that heart rate down and put somebody on a blood thinner, and there's multiple ones. Um, or you can try to fix the problem by ablating or um, doing away with that extra little electrical tissue. So the heart's a cool muscle. So it has, not only does it pump, but it has electrical abilities to conduct electricity from cell to cell, and it has specialized electrical wiring in it to do that. And it normally starts in the upper two chambers, the atria, and then it's transmitted to the bottom two chambers, the ventricles. And it has to be done in a coordinated fashion to have blood move through it uh, appropriately. The, the ablation procedure is done by a cardiologist, actually an electrophysiologist who's a cardiologist. So they're really super specialized. They go into the heart and they, they map out where that extra little uh, electrical impulse is that's causing the problem and they they burn it out. There's different ways, actually. It's not necessarily a laser. There's thermoablation. There's chemical ablation. There's different ways to do it, electromagnetic ablation. And um, it's a fairly successful technique. A lot of people might have to go back in and uh, have it repeated, though. So that is something they would probably talk to you about. There's um, if you If you've got somebody that knows what they're doing there's not a whole lot of risk. They're going to tell you about a lot of risks that are going to scare you to death, like burn a hole in your heart and that kind of thing. It's actually pretty rare if you have somebody that's done a lot of them. That's, this is a surgical technique, even though it's performed by a cardiologist. Um, but the, the technology for doing this is a lot better. They've even done some without any uh, radio contrast dye, which is a, you know, can, can sometimes damage your kidneys. So you just need somebody that knows what they're doing, and they're going to be honest with you what your chances are. Just say, hey, what are my odds of this, um, you know, getting rid of it the first time? Am I going to have to go back? Um, and they're they're probably going to shoot straight with you about that, Kerry. Um, well, they told me it was it was 85% successful. 
Yeah, which is, you know, if uh, my, you... My question, uh-huh. my question is, uh, I don't have it that often. Mm-hmm. How do you know it's successful? Just wait and see if you have it. What they would do is they would follow up either uh, multiple EKGs or there's there's different ways to, there's a thing called a Zyopatch or Zeopatch 2 that sort of monitors your heart rate over time, and it, you can wear that for weeks. And then they can see how many times afterwards that you are in your regular rhythm. So it's an electrical thing that, that if you do an EKG, that's where you see it. You may or may not feel it. A lot of people have atrial fibrillation, and they don't even feel that they have it. But um, that's the way that they would know for certain if, it's, if you're not in it. If you are symptomatic with it, which a lot of people are, then you may have less symptoms. But the goal would be to go back into regular rhythm and stay there. But yeah, eighty-five percent's right on the money. That's exactly you know what they quote for most people. And uh, I've had a couple of relatives have this, and they've had to, had it done. They've had it had it done. Uh, let's see, one person twice, one person three times. Um, both of them, as far as I know, I hadn't talked to them in a while, but I think they're they're doing fine right now. But in regular rhythm, but. Um, uh, you know, sometimes the first time isn't quite enough and you can have, you know, a good response for years afterwards and then it can come back. But 85 percent is about there. But if you've if you've had a lot of these palpitations and the risk of stroke, of course, is a big one. Um, you know, 85 is not that bad. Okay. All right. Well, that was my main question. All right. Thanks, Gary. Sorry if I ran ahead there a little bit. I just uh, was explaining things. All right. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Larry from Hazelhurst. Good morning, Larry. Hello. I have an old friend uh, that's had diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis about eight years. Of course, she's now on oxygen, uh, but other fairly active. Mm -hmm. But until last year, she was told the only treatment would have been a cure would have been a transplant, lung transplant. Yep. But next year, uh, our Duke newsletter, we helped us. We get one from Mass General and Johns Hopkins and so forth. And Duke uh, Medical Newsletter said they had found a medicine that would reverse it. And it was just a medicine that had been used for diabetes. So now I gather that that big center in Dallas that I heard about a while ago, that that's what they're doing. Uh, yeah, there's there's a ton of research, particularly early uh, treatment. Uh, if you've been diagnosed with it, that's why you know getting diagnosed early is a big deal in pulmonary, pulmonary fibrosis because the longer you let it go on, the more it's irreversible. So, and I'm not I'm not even aware of all the individual medications. I've had I've heard of a lot of studies going on right now that have been pretty promising if you catch it early on to reverse those effects of it. So, yeah, Larry, there's a lot of good stuff. That's that's another reason. If you've got something like and another way to think about it, you know, think about second opinions with cancer. Very common. Uh, you know, if you're dealing, particularly if it's a rare type of cancer, uh, getting a second opinion by somebody who treats that type all the time is uh, is is important. So, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That may be that's probably one of the things that they are um, they're looking at in at that center that he mentioned in Dallas. Appreciate all the information I get from y'all. I listen all the time. Oh, thank you, Larry, and thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that comment. All right, we'll go to John in South Haven. Good morning, John. Hey there. How you doing? I'm doing reasonably well. Um, I was recently diagnosed with partial paralysis of the diaphragm. 
Mm-hmm. Is there any treatment for that? Yeah, so so parse so your diaphragm is the muscle that is right below the lungs and it controls about 80% of your respiratory drive. It's a big sheet of muscle. It's attached to the in, inside of your rib cage and when it contracts, it's like a dome and when it, when it contracts, it pulls down and that allows you to expand your lungs. There's other muscles in the chest cavity that uh, contribute, but the diaphragm is the main one. And it's controlled by a nerve, uh, and it's controlled by your central nervous system, by your brain. And that nerve is the phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve has two different uh, little uh, divisions to it once it gets down to the diaphragm, a right and a left. And you can have a... um, an injury to one side of that. So usually if you have total, um, you know, if you have um, uh, paralysis of the entire diaphragm or you cut that nerve, the phrenic nerve higher up, then you can't breathe. You've got, you've got to get some ventilatory support uh, to do that. A partial paralysis, usually that's a surgical uh, or a, a traumatic injury to that nerve. So you could be having surgery from something else and maybe that might be, get damaged in that. Or you might have had, uh, you know, some trauma to it or car wreck or some other injury, gunshot wound. Um, or sometimes you just don't know. I mean, that nerve could quit working on that one side and you don't ever really identify anything. But um, if it doesn't work on one side, shortness of breath is the main thing that most people deal with. And you can live for decades and just have half of your diaphragm working and it works just fine. Um, So it doesn't really, it's not going to decrease your life expectancy. There's really not many risk of infection or anything like that from one side being paralyzed. But the shortness of breath for some people is a big deal. They're like, you know, I just can't do what I could do in the past. So there is a, um, there's a couple of surgeries. Uh, well, actually, one, one type of surgery called a surgical plication. And they sort of do a wrap around that muscle to sort of tighten it up to the point where it can, um, it can, it can help a little bit. That's an oversimplification of what's going on. But basically, it can result in an improvement in your overall lung function. So there's tests for that. Your exercise endurance, how long you know that you can you can walk or do the things that you you normally would do with um, with less shortness of breath. So um, so that's that's really the the one surgical correction of it or improvement of it. Um, and uh, in some rare instances, some people have like intermittent ventilatory support. So if you think again about the diaphragm as a muscle, it can get fatigued after a while, particularly if only one side is working appropriately. So at night, they may have some different, um, you know, uh, uh, almost like uh, what you would have uh, for um, obstructive sleep apnea at night. So there's some non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or or even mechanical ventilation. That's usually in the rare case, but the the diaphragmatic plication is the is the surgical correction for that, John. Okay, thanks. Uh, one other thing. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a retired psychologist. Uh-huh. And um, longer ago than I care to, care to <laughs> announce on the air, uh, I did my psych internship at West Virginia University. Mm-hmm. Um, in the uh, counseling center. 
and I worked with a number of students with test anxiety. Yeah. Using hypnosis. Uh-huh. Now, with with uh, really good results. So uh, I know nowadays it's difficult to find a psychologist who uses hypnosis, but if a person is having a problem with anxiety, particularly situational anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, hypnosis um, is is a really good tool uh, to um, work with anxiety. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's one of the t- – and I think that's – I'm glad you brought that up, John, because I think a lot of people – um, they don't realize that there's a lot of things like that out there. And it's not just, I mean, there's other types of techniques. And first step is getting to somebody who knows what they're doing and is trained, just like you mentioned in that, and then uh, just trying it out. And medications for anxiety, depression, they've been so successful and certainly a great tool. But I think we've shifted away from the cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, hypnosis, other types of um, of uh, techniques to to really retrain the brain to deal with these things. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is that's that's a tool that you certainly can use. So thanks that thanks for sharing that, John, and uh, uh, good luck to you with uh, with uh, paralysis of the diaphragm and uh, partial paralysis of the diaphragm. That is, and hopefully you can get that uh, that corrected. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we get back, we've got Frank on the phone. He's been patiently waiting. You can call, though. We've got probably a little bit of time to squeeze in a couple more callers. You can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll be right back after this break. Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy and uh, a lot of good calls this morning. Always great to take those. If uh, we uh, run out of time today, I did want to mention that you can always email us at remedy at mpbonline.org with your question or comment. Let's go to Frank in Brandon, Mississippi. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Thanks for calling. I just had a comment to make about Low Sartan. Uh-huh. I got a letter. I got a letter, I believe from my pharmacy, but I really don't remember where it came from, to drop whatever one I was taking and substitute low sartan in its place. Now, yeah. The one I was the one I was taking was something sartan, but I can't remember the, the name of it. But but uh, they said what you said that there was some sort of ingredient in there that 
possibly could cause cancer. Right. So, and I probably should have said contamination because that's what it really was. That's a better word for it. Yeah, too. you're right. So, uh, NDMA or NDEA are the two things that um, they're industrial contaminants in the way that it's made. So, and and a lot of people are confused by this because they get a letter from their pharmacist and they're like, okay, it says to stop Losartan, but I can take another medication that is Losartan. And it's because of the contaminant in just that one of those lots. It's not just like there's one company. There's multiple companies that produce Losartan. Yeah. And, and yeah. the same thing with the comment earlier about amlodipine. It's not anything to do with amlodipine. The amlodipine is sometimes in a combination with either Valsartan, Losartan, or Herbisartan. So, Valsartan, that's what I was taking. Yeah, that's yeah, Valsartan. I was yeah. And I was advised to get off that to go to the Losartan. Yeah. But there's... So of course, that's what I did. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, that's... And that's, you know, that's... I love course, our pharmacists because they, they are really they adept at... Oh, yeah, they do. They but, could have timed it better. They could have waited till till before I renewed my Valsartan. <laughs> Well, yeah, timing's not always good in that, but uh, I'm grateful that they did it. Yeah, uh, but I'm okay. I mean, it's got it's doing a good job for me, as far as I can tell. Good, good. All right, Frank. Well, thanks for calling, Bye. and good luck Bye. to you. All right, let's go to Calvin in Macomb. Good morning, Calvin. Ah, uh, good morning, Doctor. How's it going? Good. Uh, I was just going to follow up with the uh, AFib talk. Uh, I had it for many, many years. Um, when I was five years old, I had open heart surgery uh-huh. and they did a mapping, uh, twice and got a lot of it. Uh, but they couldn't go, you, you have to get the backside of the heart by going through the heart. I know it sounds horrible, uh, but because I had scar tissue, they couldn't go through the heart. Right. Um, so at a later point I had to have a valve replacement and when it was opened up, they went ahead and mapped the backside of it. And I've been fine for years now. Uh, it's 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 amazing that you know what they can do with this mapping. So. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's gotten so much better. That even in the fifteen years or twenty years that uh, since I've been in tra- you know in in practice, it's amazing what they can do. Um, I love just to watch pictures of them doing it. You know, and and uh, how they can map all that out very accurately. Um, I should mention one other thing. Uh, I should have done this earlier, but there is another device that helps to prevent stroke in people who have atrial fibrillation. It's called the Watchman device, not like the comic book. Uh, I think that wasn't that right. There was like the yeah. yeah. So so there's a so but it's a it's a Watchman device that helps to prevent. It's implantable, but it helps to prevent dramatically um, the the risk of stroke in patients that have. Um, who have uh, atrial fibrillation? So, sort of catches. There's a there's a there's a, a a part of the left atrium that sort of balloons out, and that part um, that's one of the places you can get blood clots. But uh, uh, I think my doctor called that the Snoopy nose. <laughs> that looks a lot like it. You're right. All right, uh, all right, Kevin. Yeah. We're out of time. Thanks for calling. Uh, that's uh, certainly great information there. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Farrell. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join us next week at 11 for Southern Remedy and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. 